Welcome back everyone to A Pint with Peter, episode 7. We are finally in India. We left my dad, meeting up again with Aubrey, the infamous American and a mysterious Frenchman. I'm sure we're all dying to know what happens next, so let's get straight back into it. So we decided, because we weren't there as tourists, to actually get out and um, go and not go inside, but visit a few places. So I, I did actually want to ask that, like, because <clears throat> from the start of this podcast, I always viewed this as a bit of a holiday, and of course, yeah. in this day and age, say if me and Chris was to go to India, yeah. we'd be like, oh, we'll yeah. see this, we'll yeah, see this. Like, exactly. did you yeah. actually, did you yeah. actually have a plan? Well, yeah, I made, I made, a, I made a, a, a kind of mental note. I mean, what um, you see in New Delhi, there's a little picture of it, that's called the Red Fort. Yeah. That's called the Red Fort, and that really is a massive, imposing building. And the Red Fort was um, the the epicentre of Mughal power. It was a power base of the Mughal Empire. You can you can delete this if you want, but here's here's another history addenda. Um, do you know anything about the Mughal Empire? I don't, because it is it is it is pertinent. I'm literally picking my brain now. The Mughals. I'm going to say now. The Mughals basically they came from Persian stock. Most of these, in, you see, India is a place that's been invaded and counter invaded and counter counter invaded. Blah blah, but. The Mughal dynasty, the Mughal Empire, really lasted from you know, the time of 1066 in, in, in Britain right up to you know, 1765, when that's a very specific date, when the British East India Company moved into India. We could spend an hour just talking about the British East India yeah. Company, but initially the penetration of, of, of Europeans into India was about trade and then gradually because I think Europeans figured out you could divide and rule because uh, India is made up of a load of different states and back in the olden days if you want the states would have Maharajas yeah that they, they, they would be the rulers and what the Brits and other Europeans did they would take the side of one Maharaja and then take their land and you know that's how it works like a domino thing but the moguls um the height of their empire was i guess around 1526 something like that and they built these very civilized people they built these oh they also uh went in for towers of skulls by the way so i'm not sure that that tower of skulls in podcast two was possibly attached to the mogul empire that's what we did um the muslims the the original invaders were Turks and then the Afghans and then the Mongols and they spoke Persian and they, they built these beautiful mosques and the mosque we visited I had to think about uh, its name I think it's called Jama Masjid something like that we didn't go in but it was a beautiful beautiful building and it was the center of power for the uh, Mughal Empire and of course when the Brits moved in they took it over as like, uh, obviously it was a military base, because it is a fort, yeah. you know, it's not called the Red Fort, because it is, it is a fort. Um, so we we kind of meandered, thinking, shit, we don't want to meet Aubrey or this mad French nutter. 
so we wandered around the Red Fort and uh, we wandered around the beautiful mosque, which you know is really interesting. I guess like were you appreciating it? Oh shit! Yeah, because like a... I've always, I mean, I, I, well, I, I wasn't even if we wanted to to be sexually promiscuous in India, but I've always been kind of intellectually promiscuous. So I, I would, um, you know, we we would take, you know, Barney and I would take an interest in that kind of stuff. But we weren't particularly... You see, I think it applies even now. You know, we, man, were travellers. You know, we didn't want to be thought of as tourists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. travellers. Yeah, to, I mean, tourists, you kind of... Yeah. Oh, you know, man, we're not a tourist. We're not tourists. No, we're just... There is a stigma to a tourist. Yeah. Yeah. I um, feel like even I go away, I'm like, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm travelling yeah. here. And I, I think that's kind of applies even now. As a matter of interest, uh, because I say, if you don't know much about India, the um, mosque is still there, but the tension... You see, Hindus are very, very accepting, and back in the day, even though the Mughal Empire was, you know, covered the whole of India, they kind of accepted Muhammad. Muhammad was basically made into another avatar, into another kind of god. You know, they, they just accepted it. But um, what you've seen in recent years, because you've got this kind of interpenetration of Muslim and um, Hindu culture, what you've seen in recent years is the rise and rise of Indian nationalism. And uh, in I, I followed it with great interest in 1992, you know, the year after you were born. Um, Indian nationalists, um, I think it was in Uttar Pradesh, they took exception to um, a mosque in Ayodhya, I think the place was called. They took exception to it and basically they attacked it and they literally ripped, this is a big building, they literally ripped it brick by brick. They destroyed it brick by brick because they believe it's the site, that, that's the birthplace of Rama. I guess it was their faith. They believe, it, they believe this mosque was built on, on the site of a, of a Hindu, a sacred Hindu place. Yeah. And they destroyed it, brick by brick, literally. And then what happened was, you had interracial... This is 1992, you know, you're not talking 1850. They had these intercommunal riots. Uh, the worst, I think, were in Mumbai. And a low estimate is a thousand people were killed. Wow. A thousand yeah. people. And um, you, um, I remember seeing the pictures of it. And police actually sided with the Hindus. You know what I mean? <laughs> they, actually, they actually watched. The police just stood back and watched this place be demolished. Um, huh. Last time you were here, we were talking about Kashmir. And right at this very moment, Kashmir is uh, very close. Yeah. To, to meltdown. And don't forget, both of these, uh, they're both nuclear powers. Yeah. It really is frightening. Um, so what stands there now where the mosque was? Do you know? Or is it I don't, I, don't, I, I wouldn't just... know, to be honest, because, um, you know, Hindu nationalism is very strong now. It's a rising thing. I, I remember one of the um, kind of apocalyptic things I remember about India, and I'll have a few minutes on this later, talking... Uh, about the, if you want, the metaphysical side of India. Because don't forget, a lot of people went on the hippie trail to find, um, allegedly, spiritual enlightenment or, or to whatever cliche you want to uh, bring up. You know, find myself, man, that sort of stuff. That kind of stuff seeped in because 
being in India, you, you had a real sense of being in, in the midst of the kind of flux of life and death. And you had a feeling that life was in, on one level quite significant and on another level totally insignificant. Um, the only other thing I wrote, funnily enough, from that, from that period, I wrote down, quite poetic actually, I, don't, I, think, I think it is a genuine original of mine, I wrote down, I had this picture in my head, I was standing in a really crowded part of New uh, Delhi called Connaught Square. I was just standing there and everything was just teeming around me. And I thought, Jesus, it's like being a microbe. You know, when you look under a microscope and yeah. you can see millions, billions of tiny organisms moving about. The only other note I've got, along with the MNS tights and the pterodactyls and the sperm raining down, is... Um, microbes fornicating in the primeval ooze. Yeah, a bit of poetry <laughs> for you there. Very Actually, I must have had a slip of paper I wrote down. Basically, you know, you felt very, very small and very insignificant, but you felt you were in the middle of a life force. It's quite weird. Yeah, it's, it's very, and you speak to people who've, who've been to places like this, and it's quite a common experience. Um, I've, I've written down here, it was my Edvard Munch moment. You know that famous Edvard Munch, the scream? Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. The scream. It's that kind of, oh my God, you know, I'm alive <laughs> and I'm here. And it's fucking awful. And <laughs> hell is other people. You know, it's that John Paul Sartre thing, hell is other people. But... I, you know, one of my abiding memories, I've talked about the legal system and the educational system and so on, and the railways. I mean, railways, obviously, the transport system was very British. The other thing they've got is a press. You know, they've still got quite a democratic press, and um, you, could, you could get, I usually borrowed them, uh, you know, copies of the India Times and stuff like that. But what really struck me was talking about the smallness of life, you could open one of his India Times papers up and it would be, say, on page 7. On page 7, it would have a little snippet saying 75 drowned in ferry crash. Huh. That sort of stuff. So they reprinted in English? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's in English. Their English is actually, particularly with obviously educated people, is very good. In fact, the, the educated ones, you know, the bureaucrats, they actually speak a type of English that uh, Thackeray or Dickens would mention, their diction and so on, is, yeah. is near perfect. Um, and they also, I think I mentioned this before, they also, an educated Indian well, back then, they also knew, they knew Shakespeare, they knew uh, Tennyson, they knew Keats and all that kind of um, Victorian canon of literature. Quite a And of course they've got their own tradition of song and poetry that predates anything the West has come up with. You know, you, you've, got, you've got to see that. Um, I mean, when I, when I was there, um, I've just spoken to you about the Mughal Empire which lasted over a thousand years. When, when you're in a place like that, you get a feeling that civilizations can just come, and civilizations can go, and uh, civilizations can be supplanted. And it, it's fascinating. And the one, when I was there, um, you, you get bookstalls, and, and uh, well, you get stalls selling all sorts of shit, you know. Uh, but I, I actually bought um, a, a little copy of... Uh, Shelley, Percy by Shelley's book. And when I was there, I actually was 
developing, uh, develops a real good understanding of the poem that's called Ozymandias, because it really fitted in with the work. Do you know the poem Ozymandias? Can't well, say I do. What you, what you got, what you got to figure is Ozymandias was, I think it was an imaginary uh, world ruler, you know, like Genghis Khan, something like that, and all these... Uh, tyrants, if you want, all these emperors and leaders, they have statues made to them, don't they? And Ozymandias, it's not a particularly long poem, it starts off describing the traveller crossing a desert, and in the desert he comes across the bottom part, the pedestal, the trunk of a statue, uh, the statue of Ozymandias, right? And the, these, these lines really resonate now. So, my name is Ozymandias, King of kings, look on my work, she mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal work, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And I think that's a fantastic line, the lone and level sands stretch away. And it's, you know, there's a lot of environmental stuff at the moment, isn't there? And I, I think if we don't sort ourselves out, you're going to be looking at, at a denuded planet where the lone and level sands, probably full of plastic, <laughs> are going to stretch away into the distance. Anyway, this mad French guy, I'll come on to him later, in, in our desire to get away from him and to get away from Aubrey, we found ourselves in this uh, massive, bizarre, Similar ones exist now. So when you when you went into this bazaar, it was broken up in, into zones. So you had a, a zone for Kashmir, and you had a zone for Rajasthan, and you had a zone for uh, Uttar Pradesh. Do you get the picture? Yeah. And these places, because they're brilliant craftspeople, had examples of work, and it was really, really bustling. Now, jo Barney, um, you know, you had to... Um, I had to kind of, I'm, I'm not saying I'm saintly, but you had to keep your eye on him. And we were wandering around this bazaar, you know, looking at stuff and handling stuff. And again, you treated with a lot of deference, you know, it's uh, even though you were a scruffy yeah. Westerner, you know, you were treated really well. He, he was lingering, looking at batiks. Um, the batik is uh, it's an Asian technique where it, it's basically wax. You make a picture you use using wax, and then obviously you colour it and wash it, and you end up with a beautiful design. Now, I don't know if Barney was um, missing his wife uh, or his girlfriend or whatever, but he he, he took he took a particular shine to a batik that was um, like a crouching woman uh, in meditation, but showing her uh, her breasts, very very voluptuous breasts with. Interestingly, a breast ring in them, because I, I think breast rings over here would have come quite recent, wouldn't they? And he also had his eye on another one, which was a tiger. Uh, and we wandered around, and uh, suddenly I realised that his uh, impulse control had, had failed, and he, he kind of pulled his shirt back and showed me these two batiks <laughs> that he'd slipped under his shirt and I, I remember saying Jesus you know what what have you fucking done and uh, we were a little bit paranoid we know we didn't get chased out of this bazaar but um, he he was away with these two batiks 
uh, and we, I remember we, we, we ran, you know, we got, a, we got a few metres out and we ran, and we, I think we ran more or less all the way back to the Lord Krishna Hotel. Um, I was thinking about this, I, I mean, I, I think it's a working class thing. I was watching uh, Mickey Flanagan, you know, the comedian Mickey yeah. Flanagan. He, he was on TV the other night and he was, he was, it was really funny. He was going into great detail about when he was becoming, you know, quite famous and playing gigs. He would even, in his big thing was motorway service stations, he would even nick something like a pork pie. <laughs> And his manager kept telling him, you know, you're, you're going to be really screwed here if this gets out. Yeah. Yeah, because you ain't going to get any audiences. and You're going to be in the Daily Mirror or The Sun, you know, Mickey Flanagan, Klepto. Uh, ditto Danny Baker, if you know Danny Baker. Yeah. If, you, if you listen to Danny Baker talking about his father. I call it working class kleptomania, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I think John was... See, the thing with John... I mean, I, I don't know much about Greek, but um, you, you were going to do, um, you've done the design, haven't you? I've, I've got a, a design I want to use as a tattoo that's got a Greek word on it, because the Greek word actually explains the state of mind. Um, the Greek for what Barney had, it's called a crazier, interestingly. <laughs> it's called a crazier, and it's basically uh, a weakness of your will. You know, it's where where part of you is saying, don't do it, don't do it. Uh, you know it's going to lead to trouble. Because you can imagine in that situation, had he been nicked, you know, he probably would have got a beating. Because they were with the punishment. And he probably paid. would have paid a bribe. That's how, that's how it works. Uh, you know, you'd probably be paid a bribe. You'd probably get a beating and a bribe. Um, but he... he this is, I mean, I'm trying to write a, a little novella around this. I mean, he, he had a serious lack of impulse control. You know, that, that was it. it. It was dangerous. It was dodgy. But, and this is where it, it rounds off nicely, when we got back to Lord Krishna, Aubrey was sitting there. And he was, I remember he was strumming a guitar. He was one of these fuckers who knew everything about everything, you know. He had to sit around and listen. <laughs> and um, Barney got talking to him. And it, like, a, sorry, I must be anti-American, but some Americans, they, they are quite gullible. And Barney had the gift of the gab, I've got to say. And Barney was saying, oh, we've been down to the bazaar and I, I've spent... Um, you know, £10, I think it would be. It's a lot of money. You don't forget, we yeah. probably only had £100 to, to last us. Um, I've got these two fantastic batiks, and uh, he, he persuaded the uh, the American guy to part with, I think, I think $15, $20, something like that. That was quite a sum. So the other batik <laughs> is possibly <laughs> in some uh, flat in Chicago or <laughs> Uh, yeah, the sky's an east coaster. So that was brilliant because the proceeds from uh, from that um, piece of idiocy uh, actually helped us out considerably. Because don't forget, uh, fifteen twenty dollars, as I say, would be obviously you know you work it out. Oh yeah, probably quite a bit. About a tenner, yeah. if you want, and a tenner would be two hundred rupees yeah. approximately. So. 200 rupees would pay for a 10-night stay. Are you with me? Yeah. Because the trains were very cheap as well. You know, 
your taxi rides, you know, your, your, your rickshaw rides, you were talking maybe a couple of rupees. It, it was, it, they hadn't quite, you did have a slightly developing tourist industry, but they hadn't quite caught on, yeah? They hadn't quite caught on, so, and they were still quite amenable. I, I, I think, as I said before, a cautionary tale, I think a few years later, you know, they got a bit more sussed out, and, and you know, the ripping off would have come from both sides. Um, so that, that also gave us some cash to head off to the Nepalese embassy, because you, you, you had to have a visa, and uh, the next day... That's the, that's the big stamp there. It says, seen at Royal Nepalese Embassy in New Delhi. And you're allowed a 15-day visa. It was a tourist visa. And we paid 16 rupees. Could be what? 16 rupees. 80p, probably. 80p. 80p. Or I wonder how much it costs or, now. Or a dollar or something like that. Okay. But, but going to the... Um, the consulate was a really interesting experience because um, Indian bureaucracy is something else. You can't just go to a person and get the job done. You've got to kind of be funneled through three or four people. And it's absolutely interminable. And I, I seem to remember spending you know, a lot of the day in, in the Nepalese embassy getting this visa. But we did eventually get the visa. and We went back to the hotel and uh, we, we were very careful to uh, dissuade Aubrey from joining us at this point. You know <laughs> was, what I mean? Was, so, the, was the visa part of the plan or were you this Part of the plan, or, yeah. Or were you this desperate to get away no, from no, Aubrey? No, he, he, he was saying to us, oh guys, you know, when are you going to get your visa? You know, that's yeah. oh, well, we we're gonna we're gonna hang around, you know, Delhi for a while. We love it, you know, we love it. <laughs> Anybody listening, if you, if you want to get a really more up-to-date and very, very well-written account of what it's like living in Indian City, there's a fantastic book by an Australian guy who, uh, he's, what's he called? Um, it'll come to me in a minute what his name is. The book's called Shantaram, and this guy, he escaped prison in Australia, and he, he fled to India. And amazingly, he lived in the middle of Bombay, you know, in the slum, mm. in the slums in Bombay. And uh, because he had a few first aid skills, he actually set up a little clinic. And the clinic was paid for by Indian gangsters. And he eventually became part of the gangster group. It's a fascinating book. It's called Shantaram. It's quite uh, interesting. Yeah. I, I just kind of want to know why the gangsters got involved. It's probably to move things, but... Well, read it. it I was going to say reason I'll, to I'll talk to you a bit book. more about it, because I think what he, what he does really well is you, you've got to understand that you are seeing these places through pampered Western eyes, if you want. And what we perceive as corruption is... In a way, it's the way of the world over there. It's what makes the wheels go round. What you see over there in relation to caste is quite interesting because allegedly they've ditched caste, but they haven't. Um, my nephew, your cousin, is currently dating an Indian girl. Tom. Oh, Tom is dating an Indian oh, girl, but her father will have nothing to do with him. 
Oh yeah. This guy's a pharmacist, you know, he's, he's, he's not you know, he's an educated guy, but he won't because I think I think he thinks that Tom is although we don't have a caste system in Britain, I think he thinks Tom is low caste. Yeah. If you want. I was reading a marriage report um, in the Times recently and this couple the girl comes from the Brahmin caste. The Brahmins are the top caste. Um but she wanted to marry a guy who comes from a warrior caste. And it was only at the last moment they got permission from both sets of parents to do it. It's fascinating. I mean, when we were in India, you still had, um, although it's probably banned even then, you had something called Suti, which was, uh, particularly in, in village settings, you know, if you lost your husband when the funeral pyre was set up, the widow is expected to jump on it. Jesus. It's called Suti. You've got all sorts yeah. of traditions, but you're looking at it through Western eyes. You see, the other, the other massive thing I haven't mentioned, because it, it was a revelation, it was a revelation. I mean, we'd seen poverty, obviously, in, in Turkey. Uh, in Turkey, for example, my, my abiding recollection of being in, in kind of rural Turkey is people would suddenly emerge from out the desert and they and the guys would be wearing a, a suit made of patches. It was patched and patched yeah. and patched and patched. Uh, in, Af- in Afghanistan, the poverty was really evident. But um, when you got to India, it was on a different scale. It was on a different scale. And, and at night time, uh, the stations, because the stations were, were built on British models, you'd get literally thousands of people who would who would emerge on the, to the stations and sleep on the platforms. And uh, when you when you were on the trains, uh, you you'd look out at night and you'd see people sleeping in sewer pipes and you know, anywhere you could, you, could, you could sleep. Um, and I, I didn't um, try to paint a picture. I say go to Shantaram if you want a picture, but it's. It's it's so vibrant, you know. When you go around the streets, you've, you've got people who uh, want to shine your shoes and people who want to clean your ears, and you've got beggars and you've got traders and the, and there's loads of traffic and you've got snake charmers and uh, what's really freaky, I think I mentioned it last time, is you get these holy men called sadhus who basically wander around, start bollock naked, kind of painted white with designs on, and they, they hand out little like popcorn to you and you give them a few pice you know, rupees and mm-hmm. the pice are like pennies um, and you have um, cows are sacred there for example so you have these market stalls and you see the cows wandering around just eating anything they want off the stalls you know you've got you've got the holy men you've got the snake charmers you know you've, you've got brass bands playing it's um it's like being inside a, like a kaleidoscope it, it it really is quite quite something. Can I say, but it is an experience on your senses or like. Well, I think I think it applies even now. Yeah. Even now, to be quite honest, because um, I say I remember standing in the middle of Delhi, thinking, "Wow, this is like being in the middle of a flood, like a human tide." And uh, you do see, or did see, dead stuff. You know, cats and dogs and stuff just lying dumped at the side of the road. New Delhi back then had a population of three million. The population now is worrying; is eighteen million apparently. So although although it was dirty. It is dirty and it is smelly, you know, because of the cow shit and everything and the, and the human excrement. Because 
I mean, saw it all over the Far East. They don't have public toilets. You know, if any building becomes vacant, it just becomes a shithole, literally. <laughs> People just go and crap in there. Um, and it's, you know, probably like a pop festival. Um, so it is really, it's like your senses are being assailed. It's very hard to uh, move away from cliches, but it's, it's, it's an incredible place. But you, you, you've got to be robust. You really do. The guy is called Gregory David Roberts, by the way, if anybody, if anybody fancies that book. But if you want an insight into Indian society, it's fantastic. So we got back. We evaded. I had a, we had another Fanta. John stowed the batik away. Uh, we packed our stuff up and uh, we then took another overnight train. So, and just to give you an idea of distance, you're talking about virtually a day's travel from the Pakistani border to Delhi, and you're talking probably, it's equidistant, you're talking another 12-hour train journey to get from Delhi to the Nepalese border. How long it takes away you in Delhi then? It's probably three days, three something days. like that, three days. The thing is, in Nepal, there are no trains. There's no trains in Nepal, so... We sneaked away. We, I mean, compared to the, you know, the um, sperm raineth down journey. I remember the journey to the Nepalese border was was quite not pleasant because again, it's uh, it's it's a bit of an ordeal. It's like ordeal by people <laughs> in a way. Um, and we we got to a place called Gorakhpur, and then. When you when you got to Gorakhpur, which is obviously in India, you um, either took a bus or what we did, we went to this enormous lorry park and um, a lot of trade then, probably now, there was a lot of trade between Nepal and India. And, and I seem to remember this lorry was full of coal, stacked high with coal. And uh, we gave the guy... Um, you know, a few rupees, and once again we got on top of the lorry above the cab. Yeah, yeah. With the tarpaulins and so on, and um, we got to the Nepalese border. It's a place called uh, Burjan. On the other side, it's called Roxal. I've got, I've got a stamp in there for for Roxal. So that took about three hours. It took about three hours. So oh, just three hours riding on top of. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. So and and obviously the land begins to rise. You know, you you, you obviously because obviously in, in the Himalayas are seven eight thousand meters. You know, you you you're talking you know twenty three twenty four thousand feet. You know, I, I told you before. Um, you know, in uh, Kabul, I think is what seven thousand feet above sea level I'm not sure so you're talking a whole different level and we arrived in in Roxal which was you know just inside Nepal just a collection of um, simple hotels and a few shops and, and there's, there's a crappy crappy kind of arch you know really shitty little arch and like a sentry box I seem to remember it wasn't any anything grand like the Indian Pakistani board, you know, with all these soldiers and the tank traps. Um, and we that night, so I'm going to leave on a, on a nice note here. That mm. night, so it's a night that really does stick in in my head. We pulled our sleeping bags out and darkness came. There's no street lights or anything like that. I just remember lying on my back, thinking, you know, we're only a day 
from our destination and just looking up at the stars. It was absolutely incredible because there's little light pollution there now, but back then there was none. And you, you can see with your naked eye, you can see the Milky Way and you can see all the constellations. I, I'm just lying there, just looking at it. Um, and according to experts, 80% uh, of stars not visible from anywhere else can actually be seen from Nepal. Even now, if you go online, you, you've got um, something called astro-tourism, where people go to Nepal just simply to stargaze. Um, so we, we were actually in Nepal. The following morning, again, it, it's really, even 40 years later, it really sticks in my head. After that spectacular night sky, we set off on, on the lorry again. And it was a beautiful, clear hot sunny day and you can in the, in the distance another guy was traveling with us i think he was dutch i can't remember he'd, he'd been there before um, it's an amazing sight in the distance i remember pointing and saying are those clouds and you, you could actually see the himalayas you can actually see mountains from over 100 miles away and you can you can see them rising so with that memory guys with the the beautiful starry night and and the beautiful himalayas in the background i will leave you and um, i think you're going to find the Kathmandu stuff really really interesting because i, I did have three or four quite central experiences there which, which have stayed with me to this day so, so the spiritual so, enlightening so, so lick, lick your lips because <laughs> i think i think uh, we can probably get three or four podcasts mm. out of nepal i feel like we'll finally find out how my dad became a priest there yeah <laughs> father yeah. peter how he yeah. found this spiritualization yeah that's right. right so we'll wrap it up there then wrap it up so i guess we finally made it to india and we've once... made it to india and we're out of yeah once, out once of again i'm a bit in shock because like i said i'm yeah. generally going into this with a bit of a modern mindset because like right you know, originally I thought my dad would have flown to India, he didn't. And then I thought, right, we're getting to India. It's going to be two weeks in India now. Yeah. Sightseeing. But no, three, three days yeah. off and out. Lying have... was for pussies. Right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Or uh, getting the magic bus. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, I was looking at some flight prices. Um, if, you, if you go way back to the you know, 1950s, when obviously you know, there weren't many airlines and not many planes... To actually fly to India would have cost you several years normal salary. And even, I think even in the 70s, if you would have taken flights, uh, obviously there'd be nothing direct. I think you'd be paying a massive amount of money. You see, why I think what we're doing here is quite interesting, because you're talking pre-mass tourism. I have to be honest with you, if you said to me, Here's, two, here's a free ticket, Peter, for you to go to New Delhi and spend a week there. I, I don't think I'd go, because it's not the New Delhi I've been trying to describe to you. I mean, the Red Fort, for example, the pollution is often so bad, you can barely see the Red Fort. It, it's that kind of critical. And back then, obviously there was plastic, but although the place was, was a bit of a mess and, and was smelly, most of the waste was organic do you know what i'm saying, yeah, I'm yeah, saying? It's, uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't have all the problems you have now whereas uh, for example i might have mentioned it before you'll have to edit it i mean julie and i were in kerala and uh, we were being 
ushered away from going down this side street, which led onto the uh, onto the seafront. Um, and when we went down there, uh, it was just unbelievable. You're talking about piles of rubbish stretching as far as the eye can see and stretching out from the rocks on the shore, maybe 50 metres, and it would possibly have been five metres deep. Wow. You imagine. Yeah, I mean, you know, so you know what I've been talking about, and I, I tried not to emphasise the squalor because, as I say, I'm looking at it from through Western eyes. Um, I think they still have major uh, environmental problems, um, which, which are going to be quite hard to address. Um, difficult. I remember watching a program recently that Sue Perkins did, and that kind of touched upon that. Yeah, she yeah, took a yeah. day trip down the yeah. river. And it was mind-blowing, some of the stuff she saw, like sewage pipes just openly going in. Like you said, mountains are rubbish. But then kids just swimming in it, which you just can't imagine. I mean, we don't go to say a water park because that's bad enough for us. But, you know, I don't know if you want to do it on the next one, but um, I was saying to Chris before we began, for me, uh, you know, I'd been to Greece and I'd been to Israel. It, It was... A road to Damascus moment, if you understand that uh, reference from the Bible. It has stayed with me all my life. I was saying to Chris, no matter how, you know, without pontificating, no matter how bad my life might have become or how bad life could ever be in this country, you're light years away from the problems you have in, in, in a third world, well, in a country like India, because there's still a massive divide between the rich and the poor. It's absolutely massive. Uh, but anything, I remember, I remember just jumping ahead, I remember getting back home and my mum, I mean, it's unbelievable, uh, my mum just said, oh, hello, enjoyed your trip, Johnson <laughs> beans on toast. <laughs> I sat there eating these beans on toast. It was the most wonderful meal. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because you'd seen what, yeah, what was going on in the world, if you want, and it it, it does stay with you. Um, maybe it ought to be compulsory for people because, you know, you put the TV on, you watch it tonight. There'll be somebody whinging about, you know, being disadvantaged and being poverty stricken. And of course, there is legitimacy in those comments, but it's relative. Mm-hmm. It's totally relative. You know, you're not starving and having to go and sleep in a sewer pipe. Oh, um, you know, it's um, it, it stayed with me forever. Well, everyone, that's the end of episode seven. We were in India and were already leaving. I didn't expect it to be over so soon, Russell. No, I feel like this is a cop-out. Like, we're like, oh yeah, we're doing a fun podcast to get to India and we're already leaving. But did you, did you know that your dad went to Nepal after India? I'm, I'm going to be honest, I actually didn't. So I'm going in just as blind as everyone else here. Like, as a kid, we always heard stories of him going to India. And that, like I said, that, honestly, that's why I thought it would end. But it turns out he's gone further. Well, yeah, you, you, like, you've given me stories before. Like of your dad's, some of your dad's trips. I remember vividly about him driving the Mercedes, that story you've told me before. So you're kind of like me now, going in with nothing. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear of stories I've never heard myself. And maybe I'll finally discover how my dad became a holy man. You know? <laughs> here is hoping. And also, Chris, I think we need to find out 
who is John and who is Barney? Yes, because he keeps mentioning John and Barney, and I think they're the same person, but I'm not too sure. Yeah, is there a secret second person? Is this the amphetamine still wearing off in my dad's systems today? Did John slash Barney have a split personality disorder? And Sometimes he was John, sometimes he was Barney. Maybe he did, or maybe it's a massive government conspiracy. Um, my dad is worried about who will find out. Maybe your dad is John and Barney, and he didn't travel with anyone who was by himself. Oh, like, I feel like his stories will become so much more deeper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, everyone, if you are liking what you hear, make sure to like and rate us on iTunes. It gets the podcast notice. And if you are enjoying it, pass it on, on there to a friend. We would love to get the listeners up. We would. Just send something out on your Twitter, on your Facebook, if you're liking what you're hearing from us. It'd be much appreciated. Or mention it on a coffee break. You know, just, just help us push it. And also, if you aren't already, make sure to follow us on Twitter. We like to use it as a bit of a visual guide to the podcast. We will be sharing a picture of the batik that John or Barney robbed. And we've got so much more that we put up on Twitter as well. So lots of pictures, that things that Pisa shows us when we're recording. Yeah, and we also like to expand on some things that he touches upon, so we will probably try to do on later podcasts. And as always, if you've got any questions for the man himself, just email them to apintwithpeter at gmail.com. And also, because I missed it out, our Twitter is at apintwithpeter. Right, everyone, we're off to Nepal.